Please leave an honest review wherever you subscribe to this podcast. Roger Billick is coming to the advance and he's not going to do the neurotransmitter workshop. He's going to do what happens when you've been Roger Billick and you've used FSM for 15 years. That's his lecture at the advanced. Roger Billick could read the phone book to me and I would be like interested. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. Dopamine is the go and do. Acetylcholine is no stuff. GABA people are detailed and they love lists. And yeah, not so much with the GABA for me. Serotonin is flexibility. If you have not seen Molecules of Behavior, if you haven't watched that DVD or downloaded it or been entranced by it, it's four or five, six hours. Yeah. It's amazing. So anyway, so David is a GABA guy. He wants to check all the boxes. And I'm like, David, it can't be any of those boxes. It is this is the only box focus on this box, then this and this. And I'm like, I, it, I'm not so much with the list. It's no, it, duh, it's that. So anyway, enough about machines. But machines are important. And I think. Can't do what we do without them. Oh, Hey, I broke my record yesterday. Eight machines. Nine. What the? Yeah. Patient has mold and Neil Nathan sent him up. And the patient gets dizzy, which I didn't know was a mold thing. Neil says, yes, that's a mold thing. And for the patient, it's, I don't know. But he has this rash where he just does this compulsive itching. But right here, just on the side of his arm up to his elbow. And like he has places where there's not much in the way of skin and it's all red and icky. And then he also scratches in the lower part of his leg and the back of his leg. Okay, MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome, you itch all over. You get hives. You eat something, you get hives. You get rashes on your belly, on your thighs, on your neck, on your ears, right? You get a histamine response. You don't just scratch on the C6 nerve root and the L5 and S1 nerve roots. Right. So that was interesting. So. I had one machine running. Oh, and his range of motion is 20 degrees in extension and 40 degrees in flexion. That's a good face. So we had one machine running neck pain from neck to chest, one machine running from neck to hands for nerve pain, had a positive tunnels bilaterally. So we had yesterday one running on carpal tunnel, one running on SIBO on his abdomen, because that includes the frequencies for mold, even though he didn't have SIBO, he doesn't have any digestive problems, but where does mold colonize? In the gut. And concussion in vagus, low back to abdomen, disc subacute, low back to feet, 40 and 396 to take care of the nerve pain. And we got the sensation normal in his feet. And then because he is so sensitized, 40 and 10 from neck to feet. And one of the machines finished up early and I ran 40 and 89 just because he's so mentally sensitized. He has filters for his filters. He has, it's absolutely freaked out. And I know this is a management problem. Nothing you have scares me. And they just look at me like, what? I said, this is easy. Excuse me? You have the to-do list from Neil. Have you done those steps? I'm afraid to do those. Why? 
Why would you do that? Do that. Do you have the prescriptions with you? Yeah. Did Neil tell you to start them? Yeah. And, oh, okay. He didn't know about the lumbar disc. He didn't know about the cervical disc. He has plus three knee reflexes. Nobody that's seen him has done a physical exam on him. So nobody knew it was nerve pain. Oh, and then, then yesterday he brought his blood work in. And his blood work is stellar. I would kill, his hemoglobin A1C is 5.1. I haven't had a 5.1 since I was like 12, right? And, but here in his blood work, and he's got an N95 on. And he said, that's because I tend to make blood clots. Really? How do we know that? Well, it's in my blood work. So we brought the blood work in. Anybody out there know what a D-dimer test is? Thank you, Dr. Sosnowski, who explained it to me. Okay. The highest level for someone who does not have a blood clot someplace is 500. People like you or me, it's around two or 300, right? You don't want to have a D-dimer that's 499. That means, yeah, his was 615 November 22nd, and nobody ordered an ultrasound. You'd be very proud of my restraint. I closed my eyes and stayed in my chair and took a deep breath. And I said, you're getting an ultrasound tomorrow morning. Why? This score means that at least in November, and he flies, he's been to 90 countries. He flies a lot. And even if it's just a little DVT in your lower legs, Homan's was negative, not a lot of leg pain, not a lot of swelling, but you have a D-dimer of 614. Yeah. So he's getting an ultrasound today. And he said, can't you treat it with FSM? No. I don't. We have a case report coming up. I'm so excited. I finally finished the case report. I finally finished the schedule. You got the email yesterday? I did. With the scary attachment? Yeah. I have to sit down and pour like a cup of tea. I'm not drinking. So I have a cup of tea before I open it. It's good for you. Anyway, so <laughs> that goes to, yeah. And then treated the Vegas and... Yeah. And that was the first time you saw him? Uh, I saw first visit was Monday. Second visit was yesterday. And yesterday he brought his blood work and I just went, this is good. This is good. This is what? Yeah. Okay. There we go. So what was your list for today that I, now that I've completely derailed the train? It's it's fine. It's just going <laughs> to join the stack. That's It's what? It's just going to join the stack of lists that... Or just across the room. It always blends together. So like whatever you give me doesn't ever scare me (laughs) because it always circumvents back to kind of our general themes about everything. So I had two words, like I said, half an hour before the podcast, like these words just come to me that we talk about. And I had two words that came to me and I think they go together. One is the word intent and one is the word belief. Okay. So... When I was in college, I had an amazing instructor who was talking about the power of intention when we lay our hands on people and especially people who do massage therapy or do like longer treatments 
if you're not dialed into the patient, you can astral plane very fast. I can do my laundry list. I can think about what I have to do after I pick up my kids from school, my slides that are due next week, like all these things. But the minute you go there, so does your treatment. And you'll understand this because of horseback riding. We talked about this before, like to be present in your treatment. If you're doing dressage, the minute you mind goes somewhere, so does the horse. (laughs) And sometimes the horse goes this way and you go this way. (laughs) And that can happen with our treatment. And so when I'm thinking about how my practice, I had a practitioner who's a PT, who was a new patient for me yesterday. And I'm seeing a lot of people in especially Northern California who come part as patient and part as practitioner to get like a private tutorial, but also get themselves fixed. And they were asking how much my manual therapy skills have changed. And of course it's, you're lighter, you're more dialed in, but I had to say my intention has changed because I'm not just trying to smash through layers to get to a deep muscle. I, my intention is to listen and to see and to think about what I'm, what is under my hands. And yes, I have netters open and because I'm seeing things differently. And then the belief part comes in to, as a practitioner, am I really believing what I'm doing right now? (laughs) Did that just happen again? I've done it. I don't know. 3000 times. And it just happened again. Do I believe that? Yeah. So the practitioners that are listening and watching, you can get really discombobulated when you have a very complicated patient that comes in because you're thinking, where on earth am I going to start? We always say you have a hypothesis, start there, but have the flexibility to manipulate it as you see fit. And your intention is always going to be the same, right? To have the pain go down, to not make the patient worse. And the belief system has to come from you and the patient that what they're feeling is real, <laughs> floaty, fuzzy. I heard fizzy this week and I was like, oh, yes, it's so, a great word, fizzy. I had the 10-year-old in that was spent a year and a half nauseated. And every now and then he has trouble remembering to breathe. It's uh-huh. like he, if he gets frightened or overwhelmed, like literally he'll forget to breathe. So he came in and there's no nausea for the first time in two years. So that's all taken care of. But he had this forget to breathe thing. And it's, that's easy. So you run concussion in Vegas and you run 970 and terror. Yeah. <laughs> when do you hold your breath you, when you're scared? And there was some play going on. Somebody was playing. And it was a little rough for him, even though he wouldn't admit it. And so I ran the fear thing. And that was it. Done. It's he's easy. But his mom asked me a question. And that is, how much of this is placebo? Talk about belief. There's there is always the concern that it works because we the practitioner or the patient believes it's going to. And that's why I'm so dedicated to insisting on data to support claims. Well, the only data we have is 40. 
because it's yeah. the only thing we know how to measure is inflammation. And I told her the story about working in a practitioner's office someplace in the country. And he worked in a integrative care office where the internist that ran the office was somebody who lectures and is a big shot. And the practitioner and I are working on a patient. It was something easy like nerve pain and shoulder stuff. And the internist comes to the door. Now this was back in, I don't know, 2002, three, four. Leans back against the door jam with his arms crossed and says, I don't think I believe in what you're doing. I don't think I believe in what you're doing. I said, that's okay. Half the time I'm doing things I don't believe either. But fortunately for me, your belief has no influence on my ability to produce results. 30% of every drug trial is placebo. And I don't mind taking advantage of it. Patients who have chronic pain, who are sensitized, have what the pain people call nocebo effect, which is nothing's going to work. I've been in pain for 15 years. I've had three back surgeries, a spinal cord stim unit. I'm on these pain meds and nothing's going to work. So what's your pain level? Comes in leaning over this way and walking very tentatively. And after four visits and a proper diagnosis, he is now upright, standing upright. My leg still hurts. Yeah. What's your pain level? Oh, I hate numbers. Okay. And then getting him. So he's gone from about a seven down to a three or four. He came in with the diagnosis, speaking of belief. He came in with the diagnosis of sciatica because he had a herniated L5 S1 disc. And S1 is hyperesthetic. So he's had two discectomies and a posterior fusion at L5-S1. He was, he did the discus. What's that other thing that's on a chain? That thing. Yeah. Anyway, they're Olympic sports, heavy weights. He's a big guy. And he was flexing forward, rotating. And that's when something popped and he went down. So yes, he herniated a disc. The pain's in his right leg and his sciatica is exactly in the pain pattern of the glute minimus. I said, you don't have sciatica. Oh no, I have sciatica. No, see this diagram here on the wall? That's what you have. I opened up the trigger point manual. That's what you have. He said, I've been seeing doctors for 15 years. How is it that they didn't know that? I said, they're just ignorant. It's not their fault. They're just ignorant. Long story short, you know how usually if you're going to use that, the non-stretchy tape, the tape that you hold together a joint, this guy is six foot three and weighs 340 pounds. So he's really big. And when you read the chapter on the glute minimus in volume two, it says that the glute minimus trigger points are caused by and perpetuated by sacroiliac joint dysfunction. So I laid him on his stomach and his right leg was two inches shorter than his left. Put him on blocks, got his pelvis normal, taped crossways 
to pull the ilium over onto the sacrum and then taped vertical and his legs are even. Well, the glute minimus still has trigger points in it. Glute minimus is innervated by, the, by L5 and S1 and he tore his SI joint, but all of his leg pain is coming from trigger points in the muscles. And it's unbelieved that he had sciatica. He has some hyperesthesia at S1 and that's it. Straight leg raise, 50 degrees, 60 degrees. Braggarts, negative. Okay. Synthesis. That is our word that I love so much. I, I told him that you asked about superpower, and that's my superpower, is synthesis. Yeah. yeah. Put it together. Pay attention to all the details. And when you work on somebody, to have the intention that hammer throw. Thank you, Leaf. I just love that guy. Hi, Hi Annie. Oh, any credits device gremlins. Okay. I can have the engineers look for those. They're probably green. Don't you think? Little flight. Probably, yes. We have a lot more to unpack today. Unpack. We had some emails. Some oh, one. Yeah. That's on my list for sure. So we'll talk about that. Somebody else had written, I'm not sure if you were copied on that email about central sensitization. They wanted more information on it. And I'm not sure where to send people for more information that's, on this. That's my jam. It's the probably the best, the best webinar on central sensitization is the Vegas workshop. Right. Because central sensitization like it's like medicine has discovered the limbic system. Yes. Congratulations. Anyway, they've discovered the limbic system and there's always all this limbic retraining stuff out there. And for us, it's so easy. Yeah. So central sensitization is the thalamus, the hypothalamus. Thalamus does pain suppression in acute pain amplification and chronic pain. It's right next door to the hippocampus and the hippocampus has as its job to remember everything that ever hurt you. So everybody listening has had the experience, like you all know, if you put your hand next to the stove and it's too hot, you feel the heat and you know that you're going to get burned if you touch it. Do you remember? Does anybody out there remember when you learned that? No, because we were all 18 months old to three years old. And your mom said, be careful, that's hot. And you, of course, either tripped and touched it or went, I'm going to touch it anyway. And you put your hand on it and it's like wailing and tears and maybe blisters and red spots and ow. The hippocampus is what gets paid, it's part of its job, is to remember everything that ever hurt. So you don't remember the first time that you touched a hot stove, but your hippocampus does. So you go near the stove now, and you automatically, your body is conscious and cautious near sources of heat, because what happened when you were two years old? That's the hippocampus, and the amygdala is the emotional part of it. So those three, 
plus the anterior cingulate and the other one. Anyway, those three are all the midbrain. And in our world, they're 89. We have some scanned for frequencies that are specific for the hippocampus and different parts of the amygdala and this and that. And it's 89 works reliably and the scanned frequencies, not always so much. Every pain patient in the core, there are two slides. One is the one with the arthritic knee that shows the pain nerve going into the spinal cord, up the spinal cord. So it goes in through the dorsal root, up the spinal cord pain pathways to the thalamus, hippocampus, sensory cortex, so you know that's your knee that hurts. But there's these parts of the brain that have descending inhibition of pain. So you have an arthritic knee and you have trouble getting up the stairs, but your dog or your grandchild runs out into the street and there's a car coming. All of a sudden, you can do the 10-yard dash in five seconds and your knee doesn't hurt. Because there's a part of your brain that makes opium, morphine instantly, and it descends and suppresses pain. Okay, so that's that slide in the core. Then there's that slide of why you scratch when you itch that shows how everything is connected. Central sensitization. So automatically, anybody that has chronic peripheral pain, joint pain, neck pain, whatever, automatically their spinal cord pain pathways are sensitized. And when you come to the symposium, Jay Shaw, he has all the data. He's got the CGRP. He's got the, all the things that says that when you are in chronic pain, the goat path that takes pain messages up to your brain goes, turns from a goat path into a four lane freeway. And that is spinal cord sensitization. And in our world, it's 40 and 10. Right. So every chronic knee pain patient gets 40 and 10. Why? Because of spinal cord sensitization. The midbrain connected to the limbic system. So if you were raised in a peaceful, kind, supportive, loving household, your thalamus, amygdala, and hippocampus are all just at rest. They're like, it's cool. I'm safe. Life is good. And so if you get injured, you have a belief that life is good. You're safe and you'll recover and that people will take care of you. And you have no memory of when you learned that because you learned it before you were seven and the cortex doesn't form until you're seven, right? So the unconscious part of the brain learns what the world is like prior to the age of seven. If you are raised in a household where you're beaten, you see your mom beaten, you see your dad beat up your brothers, where you are harassed, humiliated, thrown across the room, where it's just not a safe, good place, right? Then the midbrain, 89 in our world, is sensitized. It's always on its toes. It's always ready for danger. Anything that injures you, causes pain, causes illness, you're going to die. It's, there's, we're done. That's central sensitization. It takes less to set off that pain, fear, anguish, 
part of the brain. So there's that quote, one of Carol's quotes is, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. In one of those two slides, there is actually a part of the limbic system that determines, I think it's the anterior cingulate, suffering. So the periaqueductal gray is the part that makes morphine and it suppresses pain. But there's a part of the cortex that's in between the midbrain and the cortex that determines whether that pain is just, it's just pain, my knee hurts, what's your problem? Or whether my knee hurts, I'm going, it's, I'll never walk again, I can't work, it's really terrible. And it's, they're sensitized. So the slide that goes with central sensitization is a black background with a gun that's firing and there's a bullet and you can see the flash behind it because it takes less to set off the pain response and pain amplification. And somebody that was abused, molested, raped, lived in a violent household, it takes less to set off the pain amplification in that patient than it does in somebody that was raised in a happy, peaceful household. And that is why there are patients I have where from neck to feet, you run 40 and 10, and you have a separate machine that for one hour runs 40 and 89 to turn down the limbic system. Yeah. And yeah. for those of you who couldn't see my hands, you really just go back to the core slides and look at those two slides. They're about, what, 60 slides in? Probably. I think so. Yeah. Anyway. What I want to add with 40 and 89 with this baseline of people who have had trauma, have grown up with trauma, is very similar (laughs) to professional athletes. Now, they may not have had trauma as far as abuse. Maybe they have. But the stress that these elite athletes are under, whether it's from coach, teachers, parents, teammates of you can't get hurt. And we see it as kids. We see it as teenagers. They're they're joking, right? Don't do that. You're going to get hurt. Don't do this. You have a big game this weekend. Don't do that because you have a game on Friday. So they're getting inundated with, I can't get hurt. I can't get hurt because it will be some sort of catastrophic event if they got hurt that they would never recover from. They would let the team down. So I want to add those of you who do work with teenagers and kids and professional athletes or whatever, anybody who's been active. They have this baseline of it would be catastrophic if I got hurt. They absolutely need 40 and 89 running on one machine for the entire treatment. Exactly. And most elite athletes are playing in sports where there is trauma every week. Anybody that says, I played football in high school and college, they're in a 30 mile an hour car crash 15 times a night. Yep. on the weekends. And then that doesn't even count practice. And so they automatically get 40 and 89. You're absolutely correct. And it's so nice to have a single frequency combination that will just take care of that. And they don't have to gargle and sing and meditate and stroke the side of their head and tap their ears or whatever for three months to get it to change. Just run it. Yes. I have a side note. I have a humble brag on 40 and 89. So everybody who's been listening to us knows I've had this. My oldest daughter has been recovering from ACL reconstruction. She's back playing. She had a big tournament 
her biggest tournament this weekend. I am a nervous wreck. I need to run like all the things to just watch her games because I just see biomechanical failures at every turn. So I had everything in me to just watch and I was very proud of her. And it was funny, the feedback she got from one of the big scouts, coaches, whoever was watching was like, for somebody that just came back, she looked so confident out there. Yes. Yeah. And you have no idea how much that means as a therapist when, because you can get anybody back to running, playing, skating, but when you can get a movement back with confidence, that is the icing on the cake. That is everything. I just thought it was very interesting. And because we had really been using 40 and 89 throughout her rehabilitation and you're never done with it. So I know some people are like, how do I keep using the frequencies and how do I know if it's done something like 40 and 89? for an athlete, I think should always be spliced in there because they always need that, that confidence of the movement and their movements are always going to be changing, right? So you get somebody back who's 85, 90%, you still have that last 10% that of strength, coordination, proprioception, balance, firing, quickness, you name it, that still needs confidence. There has to be a central nervous system buy-in that this movement is not only safe, but it's going to be awesome that's that last little piece of it, that nugget. Yes. It's just, it's yes. What she said. We probably have some questions. Let's jump into those on our Q and a that comes on regarding placebo effect. Abraham Hoffer, look him up because Abraham Hoffer is amazing. Used to say at the orthomolecular medicine meeting each year that hope is an essential component of healing. There is no such thing as false hope. The patient's hope, is of course real. Unfortunately, sometimes practitioners try to inspire hope by using false pretenses. You're never going to get away with that. These falsehoods eventually fail. The patient's hope is often dashed, true story. Therefore, it is essential to convey to the patient real grounds for hope and for the practitioner to share in that hope for their best outcome. Paraphrase, of course, he said it differently each time, but the message was consistent. This is totally absolutely very well said. Yes. So the kid, any, by the way, anybody younger than 50 is now a kid, right? They were born after I was 25. So they're a kid, but this kid with the SI joint and the trigger points and the glute minimus, he said, I still have pain. I said, of course you still have pain. He said, excuse me. He said, I'm not pain free. And it's like, after three lumbar spine surgeries and a spinal cord stimulant, a torn SI joint for 15 years and trigger points in the glute minimus for 15 years that have never been treated or addressed, you're going to have pain. Yeah. My goal for you is to have a life. It's a management problem. You're going to have to keep your SI joint taped for one year. You're going to have to get the glute minimus finally addressed. He weighs 340 pounds. There's no way to do ischemic compression on the glute minimus in somebody, for me, in somebody that size. Even FSM, I couldn't touch it, helped a little bit, like got the referral pattern down. I said, no, it's, but you can have a life. It's a management problem. Oh, so the same thing with the mold guy. This is a management problem. And so his testosterone is low. It's yeah. You have mold that affects central signaling and 
of course your testosterone is low. This doctor I'm seeing doesn't want me to take testosterone and I didn't want to take testosterone because I'm going to have to take it for the rest of my life. And I said, so what's the problem with that? I'd have to take it for the rest of my life. Uh, You're welcome to have that prejudice. I live with one foot equally in both worlds. The only reason that I've been able to do what I've done for the last 27 years, I hit menopause before I started practice. The only reason I'm able to do what I do is that I've had physicians who prescribed hormones for me. You ought to be dead when you're 46, right? So do you want to have the quality of life that you have if you use topical testosterone and keep your levels up where they belong? That quality of life is you aren't depressed, you sleep better, you have better muscle recovery and more energy. You're using an external crane because you're 66 and your testicles know that they're short-timer syndrome. I want the rest of your life to be quality. Yep. Oh. It, yeah, again, the intent, right? The intent of the treatment, your role in this person's healing, progression, however you want to phrase it. And still um, respecting it. It's yeah. okay. You can have this preference. Yes. This is a preference. And I don't blame you. Lots of people have this kind of preference. Yeah. And... I'm more interested in having a life. Yeah. So I like sleeping. I like having muscle recovery. I like having parts that work. So yeah. there is a reason that God invented FSM and supplements and diet and the gym and pharmaceutical medicine. There's a place for everything. Yes. There you go. Alf has a question. Here's a place for his question. Talks about reducing an acute surge of cortisol helping low thyroid function and reducing an acute increase of histamine. Oh, sweet. Those are fun. Acute surge of cortisol is just 40 and 71. Quiet the adrenals just and 40 and 89. Sorry, I'm speaking in numbers. So there's two things. Number one, how do we know it's an acute surge of cortisol? That's Mm -hmm. the first question. There's some assumptions that are made. It's my adrenals. So let's say that it is an acute surge of cortisol. Where did it come from? ACTH is made in the hypothalamus, I think, goes to the anterior pituitary, and then goes to the adrenals, and the adrenals create cortisol. All right. So is it enough? You can just do 40 and 71. I have data, never published, but I have data that says I can drop cortisol by 20% in about 20 minutes. So when I go to bed at night, the custom care I have set up to run insulin and leptin, it starts with 40 and 71 for 10 minutes. And, but wait, there's more. Why are the adrenals dumping cortisol? Because the pituitary told them. Why did the pituitary tell them? So you can run quiet the pituitary. I'd rather treat what is telling the pituitary that you absolutely have to run away from this tiger. That's the midbrain. So how do you quiet cortisol? You quiet the adrenals, which make cortisol, and you quiet the midbrain, which includes the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is what's telling the anterior pituitary to produce ACTH. Concussion in Vegas, 40 and 89 and 40 and 71. Quiet the adrenals, quiet the midbrain. We treat the nervous system because we can One of the things that I love when you look at the speakers we have, 
it's everybody's system. FSM practitioners take integrative medicine to an entirely new level because there's no way to do FSM without thinking upstream and downstream. Cortisol is easy. Low thyroid test, T4, T3, and antithyroid antibodies. Insurance companies don't want to pay for antibodies. And I don't care. Like, how do you, number one, how do you know your thyroid's low? Oh, because I'm cold and I gain weight and I'm depressed and I'm sluggish. How do you know it's your thyroid? I'm data driven, right? So I want data. TSH is normal. It's 4.7. Okay, the range for TSH, the upper end of TSH is 4.8, 4.9. When you're on thyroid replacement, you want it down around 1.2. Okay. So if it's 4.7 in my world, that's not normal. That is the pituitary screaming at the thyroid, come on, help us out here. All right. Then you have T4. T4 is a storage form of thyroid. It has four iodines on it. It is almost completely useless. It's 80% inert. Receptors don't fit with T4. There has to be an enzyme that takes one of the iodines off and turns it into the active form of T3. If you have elevated antithyroid antibodies, they glom around the protein that carries T4. So this enzyme can't get to the T4 to take off the iodine and make it into the T3. When they measure your T3, they don't actually measure T3. It's calculated. They guess. But it's a number on a page. So low thyroid, yes, you first test it. If the patient has antithyroid antibodies, ask them if they have root canals. I was on cortisol replacement. My adrenals did not make cortisol. I was on thyroid replacement, but just T3. And when they took out the last inch centimeter of infected bone in the last infected tooth. Two weeks later, I did not need thyroid for the first time in three years. And my antibodies went from, I don't know, 300 down to 27 in a month. And four weeks later, I didn't need cortisol. Wow. So low thyroid, you can't drive the thyroid because the thyroid's not the problem. Antibodies are the problem. Receptor sensitivity is a problem. And acute, it's not four o'clock. <laughs> um, reducing acute use of histamine. I have a patient that has like for really MCAS, like itching all over. And the MCAS protocol is just allergy reaction in the fascia, the blood, everything. Derek, 970 is the emotional frequency And it's the organ associated with that emotion in Chinese medicine on channel B. Oh, yeah. Thad says the enzyme that takes off one iodine from T4 to T3 requires selenium. So no selenium, no enzyme. And of course, no frequency can put a nutrient that's that. So supplement. Way to go. Fastest hour of the week. Cynthia, you said it. Okay. So before we go, I have to say my quote. Okay. Which doesn't really jive with today, but... 
It does. Cause I wanted to tell a story and I'll tell a story next week. So the quote was with, no, it's a long story. The quote is, it's a long story. I show my scars so others know they can heal. Amen. So I heard a lot of really great feedback this week about how we storytell and how we talk about how we mess things up or how we do things and we learn from them. And that person was saying just how authentic it feels to listen to us because we're not preachy. We're not talking about how we've done everything right. You especially say you couldn't possibly have made more mistakes than me. And I thought about that all the time when I would make mistakes or take my sideways steps. So that's why I wanted to share this quote for anybody who's listening and feeling like they can't do this, whether it's a patient or a practitioner, like we, we have lots of scars. This is how we heal as a group and we share information and the intent and the belief is that we're all getting better this way. Every way. And everybody does the best they can at the time with what they've got. And oh, I love that. That was your mom, right? That said that. God bless her. And yeah. the the other piece of it is when I look back at how much I've learned by being so sick for so long. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what it's not just me and the team that supports me, including you and Kevin and everybody. But when you look at the fact that in 1999, I was allergic, IgE allergic, broke into welts. I was IgE allergic to everything I was eating. I didn't eat milk, eggs, celery, or lamb. And so I lived on milk, eggs, celery, and lamb. (laughs) until somebody put me on gastrochrome and I met Vince Marinkovich who's an allergist and immunologist and hung out with Jeff Bland and then there was the root canal story and then there was the mold story and then there was the shoulder rehab and then there was the neck and then there was the spasticity and then it's when you learn things by and you have a belief in the fact that you can heal because you have healed and you have the intent that the belief again, that you can recover. It's like, I share little bits of my, yeah, I had that happen. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Still went to work and I got better and it's what's possible. And you have scares me. Right. There's the thing. And then Annie will talk to you. We'll answer that next week. And we missed the, question we were supposed to answer we'll get to it we'll just on the list it's moving up the list it's it's public enemy number one next week okay thanks everybody love you lots love you more see you next week the frequency specific microcurrent podcast has been produced by frequency specific seminars for entertainment educational and information purposes only the information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice do not create any type of doctor patient relationship unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.